You are listening to the 12 Stone Podcast. For more information on our eight locations or service times, please visit 12stone.com. Now enjoy Pastor Jason Berry as he delivers How Big is God's Grace? So welcome to 12 Stone here at all of our campuses online. We're so glad that you're joining us this summer. And if you've been around this summer, hopefully you've sensed that God's up to something around this place. Man, God is moving, God is stirring, and uh, today we pray will be no different. We're, we're excited, because today I get a chance to talk to you about grace. I love, I love this topic, because I love grace, and we're gonna, we're gonna explore what grace looks like, and I think there are two responses to grace that are, that are off, and there's one response to grace that is right, and God's gonna walk us through all those things, and I'm excited for that, but I wanna start with a story. I wanna, I wanna create a picture for us. Uh, I was 16 years old, and I had just gotten my driver's license, one of the best feelings in the world. Can you remember that moment in your life when you're like, freedom, it felt good. And my dad and I were having the conversation you have at 16. The car keys were sitting in the center of the table, and he was explaining to me the responsibility of what I was about to step into. Son, I'm trusting you with a lot. You have a multiple ton vehicle that you're going to be driving. You could really mess up. Like you could make a big problem for yourself. Can I trust you? And I looked him in the eyes with all that I could muster. Yes, God, dad, my God. Yes, dad. You not at all. Not even. Anyway, he's in this service. So I love you, dad. Said, yes, dad, you can trust me. And he slid me the keys. First car I ever owned. I bought for my grandfather. You remember your first car? Tell your neighbor, tell your neighbor what your very first car was if you remember it. I'm impressed at how many of y'all remembered your first car. Some of y'all are old. All right, curious. How many of you were proud of your first car like you liked it? Really? How many of you were not proud of it? I am in that camp. I had a 1987 Nissan Sentra SE. And the SE did not stand for sports edition in any way, shape, or form. In fact, here's a picture of me with my, with my very first car. Look at that guy. That's a good looking, anyway. The color of the car is indeed cream. Uh, it's the third worst color. Uh, the first is pink, second is purple, and then cream. So that was, that was my life. It was a four-cylinder stick shift. I would have to turn the air conditioning off to go up hills, no lie. Um, <clears throat> anyone ever had to do that? That was, that was my life. So I'd been driving that car for two months. I was responsible. And then my brother and I decided to take a road trip together. And we were going to drive a couple hours north. I grew up in, in upstate New York. We were driving up north. And so uh, on the way home, I saw an opportunity. There was a, a long straightaway hill on the highway where I was going downhill. So I could actually let the car pick up speed. And I was like, I wonder how fast I can get this car going. And I can tell you exactly 82 miles an hour, because that's what the cop said when he pulled me over. <laughs> I thanked him for his accuracy so I could know the speed of the car. Uh, I begged for my life. I begged for my life, and uh, I said, you don't know what my dad's going to do to me when I get home. He said, oh, I do, and he handed me the ticket. <laughs> I had another hour left in the drive. As I was driving home, I was sweating. I was sick to my stomach. My brother thought this was hilarious, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> I started playing out in my head, like, how close is the Canadian border? I could start over, right? I could start a new life, change my name going to witness protection, that someone will adopt me. Like I, I did not want to have to tell my dad 
after I had sat across that table, I promised him I'd be responsible. And two months in, see, I think if we're honest, listen, I think if we're honest, many of us look at God that way. Don't miss this. I think many of us look at God and say, I messed up. I, I, I dread having to go home and talk to my heavenly father about this. I, I dread. See, I, I think some of uh, the most important things that are broken in us is our view of grace. See, I think if we understood grace, if we understood that God's disposition, his heart towards us, it would change everything. See, I think our view of grace is too small. And I think God wants to blow that up today. In fact, let me, let me do this, because I'm going to say the word grace a million times today. You're going to hear it. And so I want to be clear. There's no simple one-sentence definition of grace that's like the magic bullet. That, that, there's no way to fully explain grace. You have to experience it. But here's a working definition of what I mean when I say grace. Here's what I'm talking about. The unmerited or undeserving favor and love of God to those who deserve condemnation. The unmerited, undeserving. You don't deserve it. Your merits don't equal grace for you, and yet God gives us his favor and love even though we deserve the opposite. Even though we don't deserve it, that is grace. It's a beautiful thing, and I, I think that our view of grace is too small, and therefore uh, we run from God instead of to him when we mess up, and I think we're missing out on the depth and the intimacy of relationship he wants to have with us because we don't get grace. And listen, I'm coming to you personally in this. See, I've been sitting in this topic of grace for several weeks now, and I'm just going to be honest. I went into this thinking I had a pretty big view of grace, and I was going to help you all out. You laugh at me. The first week, God just dismantled me. And God showed me how I was trying to perform for him and earn for him and, and pay my own way I'm going to chip in on gas on this whole salvation experience. And, and I, I got in this and God just wrecked me for the whole first week. And I believe that God wants to do the same thing for us. And, and I'm going to tell you this. If, if last week God was asking Pastor Miles, paint the biggest picture of Jesus that you can. I think today God's asking me to paint the biggest picture of grace that I possibly can. And let me let you in on a secret. No matter how big of a picture I paint, it's not big enough. It's bigger and better and more beautiful and more inviting than you could ever imagine. And if you'll catch a hold of grace, it will change your life. And I believe one of the things that's broken in the American church is our view of grace is junk. It's too small. It's too small in me. And by the end of the day, I pray that God is going to enlarge your view of grace and there's going to be a moment to respond at the end of this service. And I think the front of this stage is going to be holy ground by the end of the day. And, and some of you are going to leave saying, I need a taste of grace. Whether you've never tasted it before or whether you just say, I, I, I've jumped into this performance religion junk for too long. And Jesus, let me taste your grace. We're going to do some business with God at the end. And so before I jump in, I want to pray for us because I cannot do an adequate job of explaining grace. It's too big. It's too good. The Holy Spirit is going to need to do this in us. So let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. And so Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor and love of God to us. God, we could never deserve it. We could never work in it enough. But Jesus, because you love us, 
Thank you for grace. Would you enlarge our view of it? Would you give us a taste of it today? Would you change us forever because of it? In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And so today, we're gonna get to work. We're gonna be in the book of John, chapter 21. It's on page 1,088 of your Worship Center Bibles. If you wanna follow along, John 21, 1,088. And we're going to be walking through the story, one of my favorite stories in all of scripture of, of Peter and Jesus on the beach. And this is an incredible story that I think God wants to use to paint a fresh, a new, a bigger picture of grace for all of us, myself included. So we're going to start John 21, verse one. Let's learn about grace and let's experience it together. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Afterward, after what? Let me set the scene. We got one verse in, and I gotta pause for a second. Let me set the scene. After what? So at this point in, in the book of John, uh, Jesus had come to earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again to pay for all of our sins. Thank you, Jesus. And at the end uh, of, of chapter 20, Jesus actually appears, starts, he's appearing to all these people, apostles, disciples, men and women, and he, and he shows up for Doubting Thomas. Remember Doubting Thomas? I don't believe in that Jesus walks through a wall and shows his nail-scarred hands like, what's up now, Thomas? <laughs> and Thomas believes. He's like, okay, I'm in for that. And it feels like the, the, the book of John is done at chapter 20, like play the violins, roll the credits, it should be done, but it's not. And I think it's not because there is one person who's noticeably absent in the post-resurrection narrative, and that's Peter. See, the last mention we have of Peter is when he messed it all up. You see, Jesus was sitting down with his disciples trying to prepare them, like, I'm gonna die on the cross and I'm gonna be resurrected in three days, and they can't fathom this, but Jesus says, listen, when this happens, disciples, you're gonna betray me. And Peter muscles up. This is so Peter. He, he, he gets his spiritual muscles up. I'll never betray you. Even if these other jokers do, I would never do that, Jesus. And Jesus goes, oh, really? Not only are you gonna betray me, you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. And Peter's like, no. And you jump ahead. That's called foreshadowing if you're watching a movie, right? <laughs> you jump ahead and what happens? Peter's watching Jesus as he's being carried away and being judged and, and he's standing by a little fire off to the side and this teenage girl, hey, aren't you one of those Jesus dudes? And he goes, I don't, I don't know the guy. Twice more. Don't, aren't you one of Jesus' guys? I don't know the guy. And then the rooster crows, and Peter's like, no. You ever felt that way? Ah, oh, Jesus, I told, you I, wouldn't, I told you I wouldn't deny you, and I did, and so he runs off. See, Peter at this point does not understand grace because he runs away. Peter runs off. He's like, I, there's nothing. He's, he's full of guilt. There's nothing, and this was to be Peter's legacy, until John 21. See, I think that John 21 exists because the gospel is not just Jesus' story, it's Peter's story, and it's your story, and it's my story. And the book of John can't end until Peter is brought back in. You see, if you've ever messed up, which is all of you, John 21 is for you. This story is full of good news and paints a massive picture of the grace of God. So let's, let's continue. Now we're finally getting to verse two. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Do you know who historians think those two other disciples were? We have no idea. Think about being those dudes. Like you're in this moment and this is your chance to put Jason Barry's name in scripture and I get lumped into two other disciples. That's a bad day for those cats. We don't know who they were. 
I bet they read when, the, when finally the new episode of, of the Bible came out, they were like, this didn't happen. But they were like, what? How did I get left? Anyway, this is how my mind works with scripture. It'd be fun to do devotions together. So we don't know who they were. So here's what happened. Simon says this, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. What's Peter doing? Peter just messed up. Jesus had died, rose again. He's not seen Jesus since. The last thing he did was mess up. What's he doing? He's going back to his old life. You catch this? See, before Jesus, Peter fished for a job, a commercial fisherman. Big nets, big fish, sell them. And when he thought he failed as a disciple of Jesus, he went back to his old life again. He went back to fishing again. It's all he knew. You see, when you, when you don't understand grace, when your view of grace is too small, when you don't understand God's heart for you, when you mess up, you can be tempted. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. You can be tempted to return to your old life. You been there? You mess up to a place that you go, I don't see a path back, and so you go back to that old girlfriend or that old boyfriend. You could put a name on returning to your old life. Some of y'all go back to that private sin, that addiction. Some of y'all go back to that old habit. You go, I don't see a path back. There's no way I can take this to God. I messed up too big, and you go back to your old life again. And that's what Peter's doing here. He doesn't see a grace big enough to be welcomed back in because he messed up big time. But look at, the, look at the words at the end of that passage. Read these with me. Would you read these out loud? But that night they caught nothing. Imagine this. You've already failed as a disciple. And Peter's been tossing his nets in all night long. And now he's failing as a fisherman. This is, his, his life is, is falling apart. He caught nothing. And that's what happens when you go back to your old life. You can go hard all night throwing the nets of your old life, trying to catch something, but you'll come back empty always. That's always what happens. Peter had seen too much. He had seen too much of Jesus over those three years to, to go back to his old life and be fulfilled in it, but he was too discouraged to keep moving forward with God, and so he's stuck. You've had moments like this. See, it reminds me actually of my wife and my story. See, I met my wife when I was a senior in college. And at that point in my life, I was sort of dating for fun. I wasn't really looking for much. I enjoyed the freedom I had. And I, I met her through some friends. And I, we had coffee and we started dating. It was long distance. She was here. I was up in Indiana. And uh, it didn't take long for her to realize she was dating a little boy. I wasn't a man. Ladies, you got, you got names in your head right now. Little boys, you know, don't you? <laughs> Never date a little boy. You look for grown men. I was a little boy. And so I, she started asking things of me. Like, listen, if we're not in this, let's not, let's not play games. And I'm like, I kind of just like playing games. And she's like, no. And we broke up. And so I went back to my boys. I'm like, Jason's back. Let's do this. Let's go. I thought it was awesome. I was freed up. I was freed up. And I didn't date her for a year. We are, we're apart for, it takes me a while, but here's the problem. I finally dated a grown woman, and I realized I'm done with these immature, fun play games. I, I just let a gold mine go away, and I couldn't have fun in my old life anymore. Like, it was empty playing video games, staying up till 3 a.m., sleeping until noon. It was empty. I had to go back, and so I, I came down to visit my family as an excuse, and I came down here, and I chased 
her down. She was dating somebody else, not for long. Daddy showed up. Anyway, so, <laughs> what? True story. Um, but I chance, uh, <laughs> that's, that's jacked up. That's not in the notes. My wife was at the nine o'clock, I, so I, I can say it. I can say it later in the day. See, but I, I, I experienced what it was like to be with Amber, and I couldn't go back. And Peter had experienced what it was like to be with Jesus, and fishing was never going to fulfill him again, because Jesus had a bigger call on his life than being a fisherman. See, this is where the story gets so good, because now Jesus shows up. Get ready to see grace. You ready? So early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, those of you who see Jesus as sort of a dry, sort of big, pious figure and don't think he has a sense of humor, he does. Jesus knows they don't have any fish, right? I mean, Jesus got jokes. He, he knew the nests were empty all night long. And he's like, got any fish? And they have to yell back. No, it's like going to a, a parents of a newborn baby and like, hey, how you sleeping? You know the answer. <laughs> Why you out? You know, it's terrible. Jesus asked, what? see, for, for those of you who don't think it has a sense of humor, he does. But what, why did he ask? Because Peter need to, needed to say out loud and admit to himself, my old life is empty. He had to say that out loud and admit, I went back, I tried, I'm throwing nets in, my old life is empty, and listen, so do you. Some of y'all are chasing your old life because you don't see a way back. You think you've outsinned the grace of God. You don't understand God's heart for you, and so you're back in your old life, you're exhausting yourself, throwing nets, and they're coming back empty time and time again, and just like Peter, you have to get honest with yourself and with God. My old life's empty. My old life is empty. See, then they realize when Jesus, threw, when Jesus told them to throw the nets on the other side, as soon as Jesus came back in, the nets are full. You catch that? As soon as Jesus stepped back into Peter's life, the nets were full, and they, and they recognized this is Jesus, and then Peter springs into action. Here's, here's what Peter does in this story. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off to work and he jumped into the water. See this, Peter's jumping into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was so full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. I've read this passage dozens of times, and I've never seen this, this spin. Look at this. What did Peter do when he recognized it was Jesus? This is the first time he's seen Jesus since he had failed him. I think what Peter's actually doing is jumping back into performance mode, putting on a show for Jesus. Oh, it's Jesus. I'll be the disciple that jumps out and makes a big splash, and he's trucking into the shore. Look at me, Jesus. I'm coming for you. Jesus goes, hey, get some fish. Peter's like, I got it. I got the whole thing. Dragging 153 fish up, trying to, trying to earn something back from Jesus. Listen, when you don't understand grace, when you don't get God's heart for you, you are tempted 
to listen, to prove yourself to Jesus. You're tempted to prove and perform and to earn, and Peter could not imagine a grace that would freely welcome him back into relationship with Jesus, and so he jumps into performance mode. I'm dancing for you, Jesus. I'm trying to get your attention. Look, I'll earn it back. I'll do whatever it takes. He can't, he can't fathom this. And listen, I think it's really easy to see Peter's performing for Jesus in that overt way. Jumped out the boat, hauling the, hauling the fish. It's easy to see it, but all of us have subtle ways where I think our view of grace is just small enough that we think we have to earn God's favor and love for us. See, I grew up in the church, and I think one of the problems that the church has to figure out is we've got to enlarge the view of grace. See, I remember in high school, I had a prayer journal, had dates at the top of every page. So I'd do my devotions, I'd pray, and every day I would write you know, what I'm praying through or what I learned in Scripture, and there'd be weeks where I was really good, and then there'd be times where I'd have three, four days where I'd miss, and I'd jump back in. And I used to, listen, I'm, I'm jacked up. I used to go back and see the empty days and go, oh, I better put something there, and I'd scribble a couple sentences, make sure it's all full, as if God's looking over my shoulder and going, ah, May 23rd, what happened there, Jason? Or as if I could fool God with some quick chicken scratch, like he's like, May 23rd, oh, you got me. You put something like, I'm trying to, to perform for God. And I feel like when I don't perform, when I mess up, that God doesn't love me. I think sometimes our Christian lives can be defined as new and better things to feel guilty about. You might want to write that down. Sometimes our Christian lives can feel like just new and better things to feel guilty about because we don't get grace. Listen, this is an article from Relevant Magazine. Let me just read an excerpt. I think this is where a lot of us are living. Some people have grown up in the church and missed the whole message of Christ. They believe what he wants from his kids is a solid performance. They've been taught all the rules and believe his blessing or punishment is a direct result of how well they follow them. And some of you are in an existential crisis because for years you have kept up your end of the bargain. You checked all the stuff that pleases God boxes. So where's the husband you prayed for, the kids you longed to have, the job you always dreamed of? Why was the formula you were taught not working? And now in your frustration, you're asking, does God care? Does God even exist? And is it possible that many of us have been so preoccupied checking boxes for God that you've never experienced everyday life with him? And you all feel that way? We can get so caught up checking boxes that we miss the relationship he wants to have with us because we don't understand grace. See, I watch, um, with the kids, we'll watch like America's Got Talent or one of those, and you, know, you gotta watch those things. It's like when nothing else on, it's like, fine, we'll watch that. And there's no fail. Every year, there's always a juggler. Juggler's like, they never, you can't, you're a juggler. Like, what's your act? What else? That's all I got, right? I don't, I don't get it. But there's always a juggler. And I don't know why it stresses me out like this guy, there's one year the dude had a, like an actual chainsaw and a bowling pin and a knife and something on fire. And I'm watching and it's like, I can't watch, but I want to see if his arm gets cut off. Yeah, y'all sick with me? But it stresses me out. All the, it just is stressful watching it because you're like, that's, that's, that's exhausting. I think for a lot of us, that's what our relationship with God can look like. I got to juggle all these things for you, God. I got to perform. I got, okay, read my Bible. Gonna pray, 
Man, I better tithe, I better give, I better go to church. Man, I better be kind, I better not lose my temper, I better be a perfect parent. And the days where you feel like you're juggling well, you're like, God loves me. Man, I'm close to God, look at me. And the days where you drop a Bible reading and you drop prayer, and man, I got angry at my kids, you, you, you start to shrink back from God because you think he's not proud of me anymore, dad doesn't love me anymore. Doesn't that sound exhausting? The good news of the gospel is you don't have to perform for God. The good news of the gospel is you don't have to earn his love. Jesus earned it for us on the cross. And at this point, Peter's relationship to Jesus had always been about proving himself, working harder, manning up, puffing up, whatever it takes. Jesus, notice me and love me. But Jesus wanted to flip the script inside of Peter. See, Peter was performing for Jesus, and what did Jesus do? I want you to see this. Here's what it says in verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it, it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. Jesus said, come and have breakfast. Listen, Peter, Peter said, Jesus, I'm earning it for you, and, and Jesus said, stop, just come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast is a beautiful picture of grace, isn't it? Just, just come and have breakfast with me. Peter, put down, put down your juggling pins. Stop trying to check all my boxes. Quit trying to earn it and be good enough and deserve it. And you, you can't work for it. Just come and have breakfast. See, Peter's gospel is one of work. Jesus' gospel is one of rest. And Peter is slowly coming to the realization that Jesus is wild about him. He's coming to the realization that Jesus loves Peter more than he ever could imagine. And he's coming to the realization that Jesus loves Peter, not what Peter does for him. Jesus loves Peter. Jesus doesn't love what you do for him. Jesus loves you. And this grace is absolutely unfathomable to Peter because he knows what he deserves is a spiritual beating, an expulsion from Jesus's crew, a disqualification of any future plans that God, Jesus had for Peter's life. He knew that's what he deserved, and it was. And yet, when he finally hits Jesus, when he finally gets into the, into, onto the beach with Jesus for the first time since he messed up, all that he experiences, there's no, there's no anger. Jesus doesn't scream at him. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't guilt trip him. Jesus, or Peter brings his guilt to Jesus and Jesus meets Peter's guilt with his grace and Peter is changed forever. So you can look back at your life and go, I know what I deserve. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to get what you deserve. Jesus got what you deserved on the cross. And until you understand the size of his grace, you think you've got to add to what Jesus did on the cross. You think you've got to make up the last little percentage of what Jesus did on the cross when in fact, Jesus offers a grace that's bigger than you could ever imagine. You see, in Jesus restored the relationship over breakfast and then when breakfast was done, Jesus wanted to restore the calling that Peter had in his life. And so if you've heard the story, you know it. It continues with Jesus asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord. Jesus says it again, Peter, do you love me? Jesus says, Peter says, yes, Lord, I do. Jesus asks a third time, and it says in Scripture that Peter was like, Jesus, you know, you know that I love you. 
See, if you don't see what Jesus is doing, this looks a little bit cruel, like he's rubbing salt in the wound. But what Jesus is doing is he's restoring Peter. See, what what he's trying to do is Jesus is trying to show a guy who has always based his worth and Jesus' acceptance of him on his performance. He's trying to shift where where Peter finds his worth and his value. Peter had always found his worth in what he could do for Jesus. And Jesus is essentially saying this. You you denied me three times. You can tell me you love me three times. Listen, Peter, I know what you did. He's saying, Peter, I know everything you've done and I still want you. Maybe you're here today and that's the only thing that God wants you to hear. He knows everything that you have done and he still wants you. He knows every deep, dark crevice of your life and he still wants you. Every thought and he still wants you. Would your boss still want you if he knew everything? Would your friends still want you if they knew every thought, every little thing you thought about them? Would would they still want you? Only Jesus, only God's grace could want you knowing everything. See, one of the hardest things to embrace in the Christian life is the free, unmerited nature of God's love because you're hardwired for performance. You're hardwired to think that you've got to perform for God to get his acceptance. And it's true everywhere else in life. If you don't perform on the job, you're fired. If you don't perform on the sports team, you're cut. And somehow in the kingdom of God, God says, I know everything. I still want you. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Nothing you can do to perform for it. In fact, Ephesians 2, I think, says it as clearly as any passage. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Grace is a gift from God. Nothing that you've done has earned it, not by your works, not by your performance, not by your earnings, so that you can't boast. There is nothing you can boast in except what Jesus has done for you. See, Peter's experienced the grace of God And it's changed him. It's changed his disposition as a person. Take it back to my story. When I got the speeding ticket, I wanted to run. (laughs) Canada, here I come. I'm out. I don't want to face that. I messed it up. But listen, let let me show you the shift that happens when you taste grace. You see, religion says, I messed up. Don't tell dad. Grace says, I messed up. Go get dad. Go get, I'm in, I'm in trouble. I messed up again. Dad, I need you. Grace opens a relationship to the size that lets you run to him when you mess up. Run to him when you fail. You don't have to hide. You don't have to fake it. You can run to your heavenly father when you fail. Grace is the most transformative experience in any person's life, period. When you taste grace, it changes you. After Peter tasted the grace of Jesus on that beach... The rest of his life is, is, is accounted for in the book of Acts. And you see what, what happened in Peter. He left the beach and he could not shut up about Jesus. I got to tell you about the grace of Jesus. It changed me. And he's out there preaching and people go, are you one of those Jesus guys? And this time he doesn't deny him. He goes, nope, that is me. I'm a follower of Jesus. They put him in prison. Hey, you, are you a follower of Jesus? Yep, they beat him. Are you a follower of Jesus? Yep, they hung him on a cross and crucified him. 
See, after Peter tasted grace, he didn't live, live selfishly. He lived on mission. You see, when, when I start talking about grace, I think the evil one sometimes wants to whisper, grace means you can do whatever you want. If God's gonna accept you back no matter what you do, live it up. See, that's not what happens. When you taste grace, it doesn't free you to sin. It frees you to love and serve God with everything you have. See, if you're taking notes, when you experience grace, when you experience grace, you give your life to it. Grace demands your life, and it's out of love. It's not out of obligation. You don't read your Bible. You don't come to church. You don't tithe. You don't serve out of checking boxes. You do that because you've tasted the grace of God for you. His love for you is greater than you could ever imagine. You spit in his face. You sinned against him. You should be his enemy, and he sits on the beach and says, come have breakfast. When you experience that, your life is changed forever. And you're transformed in it. The most powerful force in a Christian's life is his or her experience of grace, period. So what's your experience of grace, Ben? I'm gonna be overly transparent for a second. I think functionally, I have spent decades of my life operating on sort of a 90% grace. I don't think I'm the only one. I think functionally, I would never have said that, I would, because I know what the Bible says, but functionally, it's like Jesus took it to the 10-yard line, and he's like, all right, I'm gonna hand the ball off to you, take it in the end zone, and I've gotta, I gotta add to that last 10%. So when I fail, I'm not in the end zone anymore, and so Jesus doesn't love me like he did, and I gotta, I gotta carry that last, for t- last 10%. When I'm juggling and keeping the balls in the air, God loves me, but when I drop it, ah, I missed the last 10%. That was mine, Jesus, sorry. As if when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he said, it's finished 90%. I don't, I don't know what your experience of grace is. But I know this much. Anything short of the full grace that the Bible talks about is an exhausting life. And some of y'all are exhausted. You're either exhausted because you've been throwing your nets in your old life trying to find meaning and you can't find it, it's empty. Or you're exhausted because you're just constantly feeling like you have to perform for God's acceptance and perform for God's love, and that gets exhausting. See, here's a picture. Two weeks ago, my son, uh, 11-year-old, my oldest son, he's losing teeth. We're back to the molars now, which is complicated. He had a tooth that was loose, needed to come out. He's having headaches, and so uh, in the morning, we said, Luke, today's the day, but we gotta get this thing out. So we're gonna try once an hour all day. We'll spread it out, but once an hour we're gonna try and we're gonna get this thing out. And so every time we lay him on the couch, we say, Luke, we need you to be tough, bud. Can you be tough for us? He said, yeah, and he'd literally, and he'd tough it out. We'd try, took us seven hours of trying till finally that tooth came out. Finally came out relief, thank God. I was tucking him in that night. And he said something so profound. I think he said something that all of us might, if we were honest, admit. He said, Dad, it's been a long day. I am sick and tired of having to be tough all the time. If you were honest, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of carrying it? Aren't you tired of thinking that if you don't, God won't love you? If you don't do this, if you don't do this, if you don't do this, if you drop that ball. See, I think... 
for a lot of Christians, the word rest is not synonymous with your relationship with your Father in heaven. I know people who walked away from Jesus because they were exhausted. But none of that takes into account the grace that God has for you. His unmerited love and favor for you. And when you have a small view of grace, you'll run from God or you'll perform, from, perform for God. But listen, your failure is met with Jesus' grace brings a profound rest. I think it bears saying again, he already knows everything about you and he still wants you. You see, I don't, I don't know how to teach this message and not give a chance to respond. Because I think in a room this size, there are people who need a fresh taste of the grace of God. For some of you, it's gonna be a first time salvation. You've never tasted the grace that Jesus offers. And you're listening to this going, this sounds too good to be true, but you hope it's true, don't you? Don't you hope this is true? And you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never bowed at his feet and said, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. And here in a minute, we're gonna give you a chance to respond to that. But I know there's a way larger group in this room of people who just say, I need a fresh taste of the grace that you just described. I'm exhausted. I've been throwing my nets in in my old life looking for fulfillment, and I'm empty, and I'm tired. And if this is true, I need a fresh taste of this grace. Or you're exhausted because you're so caught up in religion and you're checking boxes and you're working and you're hauling and you're striving for Jesus. What, are you proud of me yet, Dad? And he's, he's trying to scream from heaven, I'm already in love with you. There's nothing you can do to add to that. And I think Jesus is saying, just come have breakfast. And maybe some of you just need to come to the front here in a minute and just, just lay your performance at the feet of Jesus and say, give me a fresh taste of your grace. So across the campuses, the campus pastors are gonna step up. And they're gonna begin to lead us. And we've been praying all week for this moment because we believe that at the core of the Christian experience, if you don't experience God's grace, you'll always be exhausted. And God offers rest. So campus pastors, step up and lead us. So right here is Central. I wanna invite us into a moment that I think God has been planning for some time for this church. Because I think our view of grace is just off. I'll speak for myself, my view of grace has been off for years. And it's still not a bullseye, and I'm still, I'm still trying to, to take it in, but there's an exhaustion and a tiredness and a lack of rest and a striving and an earning that was never how God designed this relationship to work. God went into this knowing full well, you have nothing to offer me, but I still pick you. You're gonna spit in my face and I still pick you. I pick you so much that I sent Jesus to die in your place. And for those of you who have never said yes to Jesus, you never ex experienced the grace of Jesus, maybe your prayer would look something like this. Let's put this up on the TV for a second. Your, your prayer might, might be a simple yet profound thing by saying, Jesus, you're right, I'm wrong. 
Jesus, I surrender all of me to you. Jesus, I believe you paid it all and finished the work of my salvation. I receive it as the gift of grace offered to me, and I surrender my life to you. Here in a minute, we're gonna put those prayers on the screen, and we're gonna leave it up there. And if that's you, the prayer team's gonna come out, and it's gonna take some courage, but I'm telling you, the grace of God will change your life. You don't have to perform to get it. You do, it's a free gift, but you have to receive it. My kids don't earn Christmas presents, but they still have to receive them and open them, right? You have to believe and receive in Jesus alone. And so the prayer team's gonna come out in here in a second. We're gonna invite you. You come straight to one of them. They're gonna put their hand around your shoulder. They're gonna lead you through that prayer, and they're gonna lead you into salvation through the grace of God. That might be one, that might be 100, I don't know, but, but this is your day. If you've never said yes to Jesus, today's the day. There's a second group. And three weeks ago, if I was in the seats, this would be me. I'd be running down front. Your view of grace is off. It's too small. It's incomplete. God has opened your heart to a grace that's bigger than you could have ever imagined. And maybe you're in your old life, throwing nets and coming back empty. You're saying, Jesus, I need a fresh taste of your grace. I thought I out you. I thought I did too much wrong and I couldn't come home and, and you're telling me I can. So I wanna, come, I wanna come back. Or maybe you're like me and you're living in the religious, just juggling and working and striving. And maybe you need to lay your performance at the foot of the cross. Say, Jesus, give me your grace. And I think it's meaningful that you move. So you can just make this front an altar. You can kneel. And you confess that to Jesus. And I believe he wants to give you a fresh taste of grace today. Well, good morning, church. We're so glad you're here. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. We're going to celebrate salvation in this place. Celebrate the work of Jesus. You lift your voice. Let's celebrate together. Well, I was buried beneath my shame. That's right. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was fine. You see.